0: Praise God. God is so good. Thank you all so much. That was sweet. Uh, Okay, love you guys. We're going to be in Romans 5. So open up your Bibles. We're going to throw it up uh, on the screen also if that's more convenient for you. But we are going to finish Romans chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 12 through 21. If you're new uh, with us, if you're a guest, like Francis said at the beginning of the hour, we love that you're here. We love that you're here. We'd love to connect with you. We are going through the book of Romans this entire school year. It is an awesome, rich, rich book that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he had never been to before. He had never met these people, and so because of that, Romans is unique because he basically has to take these people who he's never met, he's never already shared truth with them, and walk them through all of what we believe, From the beginning of the end from the gospel to the application of the gospel and so it's such a rich book and so uh, that's really what we're camping out Um, we believe that uh, going deep is what you're called to do and designed to do so verse by verse we're just chugging through this Um, while you're flipping there uh, I, I am a firm believer that uh, if, if you believe something is true, it will have effects in your life, right? If you believe something is, is true, then your belief in that will have effects, whether it is or whether it isn't, whether you believe in Santa, it's going to change how you interact in the world, uh, all of those things. I had a cousin, um, I have a cousin who, awesome guy, loves the Lord, really neat guy, uh, but also a massive prankster. And, uh, and just loves pulling pranks. And one of his best friends was having a birthday. And they were like, man, let's throw a surprise birthday party for him. But instead of just throwing a surprise birthday party, um, he was like, that's not good enough. This is like my best friend. What we should do instead of just a surprise birthday party is let's take him fishing. And then let's dress up, tackle him, duct tape his hands and feet, kidnap him. He won't know it's us put him in the trunk of a car, drive him to the church, pop the trunk of the church open, and all of our friends and family will be in the parking lot and say, surprise, happy birthday. That was his idea. If you are anything like me and you hear that, you're like, that is such a great idea. (laughs) If you are anything like my wife, you are thinking, why in the world would you do that? But he's my cousin and he did that, or he attempted to do that. So they, t- they take him fishing. There's five guys total, so him and four buddies. They go fishing and they go out on, the, on this dock at Lake Ray Hubbard and they're fishing. And then they kind of come up with these excuses to leave. And so kind of one at a time, one will be like, oh, I forgot something in the car. And so they have to kind of hike back through the woods of the car. And then a couple of them are like, oh man, I gotta go to the bathroom. And so then they leave and then, you know, then it's just my cousin and his, his best buddy. And he's like, man, I'm gonna go check on those guys. And so he leaves. And what they're doing is they're sneaking away, going back to the car and changing, no joke, this is a true story. Changing into all black clothes, gloves, ski masks, right? Then they go back and they hide in the woods and they wait for their buddy to eventually start to be like, okay, this is weird. I'm sitting on a dock by myself. It's my birthday. Where are my friends? It's starting to get dark. And so he starts to get a little anxious and is like, okay, what's happening? Packs up the stuff, starts heading to the car just to see where his buddies are. And as he's walking through the woods, no joke, they're in front of him you know, 30 yards away is a guy dressed in all black with a ski mask and gloves standing in between him and the parking lot. And it's just the woods, right, next to this pond. And then he looks to his left and there's another guy dressed in all black he looks to his right and they flanked him. And so they completely flank him and he flips out just totally obviously flips out and just starts running full speed as fast as he can. They then start chasing him full speed because he's got a surprise birthday party they gotta get him to. So they gotta chase him down. They tackle him, right, and are trying to wrestle him. They have duct tape. They're trying to duct tape his arms. He's biting a guy, right? He's tried to gouge a guy's eye out. He's screaming and kicking um, one of his buddies. He broke his rib, right? Yeah, he ends up getting back in the mud and the water and the duct tape won't stick and he's fighting and screaming. And, they, and they're all believers, right? Although this story doesn't sound like it. They are. Um, he at one point, one of my favorite parts of the story is the guy who thinks this is like Al-Qaeda in Garland, Texas, that's now like come to kill him. So that's what he believes in his mind, right? He's like, what's happening? He, such a solid guy, while these guys are trying to tackle him and he thinks they're just these awful terrorists who have probably killed his buddies already, he starts shouting at them, in the name of Jesus, I forgive you. In the name of Jesus, I forgive you. And then just starts like preaching the gospel and then also like biting them, you know, and just wrestling and wrestling. And eventually they're like, okay, this is awful. This is not a good birthday surprise what seemed like such a good idea in my head, now under execution, looks really, really bad. Uh, and so like one of the guys just like takes off his mask because they're like, this is, I mean, he, this is really getting just sad now. And he takes off his mask and they're all kind of like, follow suit, take off their mask. And he's just shaking with adrenaline and probably pain. And they're like, just kidding. <laughs> Happy birthday. Worst idea ever, right? Worst idea. I wish I would have thought of it first. I didn't. Uh, they end up still driving him to the birthday party because all these guests waiting at like the church parking lot. And he's just the whole time, like, he's like shaking and holding his mom who's there. Like he never, was never going to see her again. And, and the entire time ruined his birthday. Here, here's my point, right? First of all, if you're like me, bad idea, right? I know some of you guys, Triton. I felt like you, I could see it in your eyes. You're like, oh, that'd be such a good idea. It's not a good idea. Um, <laughs> I highly advise against it, Uh, but what we believe, right? If we believe something is true, it will have effects, right? I will try to chew my best friend's pinky off if that's what it takes. If I believe my best friend is actually an Al-Qaeda terrorist who's just killed all my best friends, right? Like I will break someone's ribs if I really think this person is here to harm me or my family, right? What we believe, what we believe is true has these effects. What's going to happen in these verses is we are going to see the conclusion of Paul's argument in the first five chapters. And so what Paul does here in the first five chapters of Romans that we're ending today is he lays out his case for this is the gospel. And something's going to pivot at the end of this uh, section where then chapter six, seven, and eight are gonna be so sweet. Uh, I love chapter six, seven, and eight of Romans. Uh, and then we just get into application after that and some crazy weird theology that'll be really fun uh, to talk about in here. But, but really, before we get into these amazing principles of like what it looks like to live under no condemnation and all these sweet truths of what we'll see in the next three to four weeks, he has to conclude this argument of the gospel. And he concludes it here in in verses 12 through 21 to really set the pace. And so let me just give you a quick overview of what's happening. Chapter one, if you remember, chapter one in Romans was everybody's a sinner, right? Everybody's a sinner. And then chapter two was even you. And if you remember, if you were here that week, we we looked at the pronouns, how chapter one is like these people are sinners and those people are sinners and those people are sinners. And then chapter two, he's like, and we are sinners, and you are sinners, and I'm a sinner, right? Like that there is this depravity that sneaks throughout all of humanity and nobody is exempt from it. And then chapter three, right in the middle of it, it's okay, everybody's a sinner. Guess what the penalty of sin is? It's death. Right in the middle of chapter three is when the good news shows up. And it's like, hey, all that sin, all that death that you deserve, in the middle of Romans chapter three, gospel boom, drops the bomb. You know, it is by grace that we are saved. And and so now all of a sudden we have this amazing good news that Jesus Christ is willing to die for all of our death, die for all of our sin, and we get life now. And then chapter four is, and this is the step of faith that it looks like, just like Abraham. And so look at the step of faith Abraham had and you believe, like Abraham believed this big promise. Do you believe this big promise? And then chapter five is, let me make sure you get it. Before we go on to six, seven, eight, nine, all the way through the rest, let me make sure you get it. And that's where we are. That's where we pick up. Um, what's going to happen is if this is true, if this is true in your life, if you believe the conclusion of, let me remind you, here's the gospel, that's what Paul's doing, it's going to have effects. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to read the passage, we're going to unpack it, look at what Paul says is true, and then we're going to examine ourselves to say, do we really believe it? Because if we do, Today, at least, I'm going to talk about four pretty obvious effects that are going to sprout from this if I really believe this is true. So, verse 12 in chapter 5, Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, let me explain what's going on here. So what Paul is saying here is that sin has entered the world through Adam. Right? In Genesis 3, at the very beginning of this book, is the fall. And Adam, because of what Adam did, because of that obedience, sin has now entered the world. Even though he doesn't mention Adam in verse 12, when he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man, Paul's referencing, is Adam. We know that because in verse 14, he then explains it was the transgressions of Adam that led to all of this. Um, and then he talks about the law, right? So he says, okay, so sin has entered through Adam, and it has affected all of us, even when there was no law. And what he's referencing there is Moses, and he, and he mentions Moses there. That Moses shows up in the middle of history there in the Old Testament with the law, with the Ten Commandments, with these Levitical books that are in the Old Testament says, hey, this is the standard God has called you to. But Paul's saying, hey, man, sin has been here through Adam, even before the law, even before you knew what was right or wrong. Sin was here, it was buried within us, uh, it's always been there. Now, Look at some good news that he then says. He then pivots. That's the bad news. But, verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, again, Adam, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, what Christ has done. And then verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ okay this is a lot Paul is this book is so good Paul is so brilliant I'm a visual person so I'm going to try to give us a little visual picture here we're going to pretend that this is actually I'm going to go left to right so that it makes sense to you guys we're going to pretend this is Adam right so I'm going to make a little timeline here this is Adam the beginning of time the beginning of history We're going along, we're going along, we're going along. Because of Adam, sin entered. And then there's this linchpin point in the middle of history where Jesus shows up. And so here's what Paul is saying in his argument. If this is a timeline, right, that for you guys left to right, if this is a timeline where Adam shows up And Adam shows up, and because of Adam, because of what happened at the beginning of history, sin has entered the world. And sin has affected everyone, and all of humanity has now been contaminated because of what happened in the beginning in Genesis, in the third chapter of the entire Bible, the fall happens. And then there's this reference of Moses, right? And so um, don't hold me literally to this, but Moses is going to be around here, let's say, right? Moses shows up, and he's like, hey, I now have the law. We now have a standard. God, God has set apart these people. And so now there's this law that's now been exposed. And it leads all the way up to here to where then Jesus, and we'll talk about this here in a second, Jesus ties all of this together. And then this is New Testament time. This is the end of the world, which is probably like three months from now. But we're gonna just say, for the sake of conversation, we'll just say here. It depends on who gets elected. It doesn't matter. Um, we're all doomed. Um, okay, so, so let's say we're here. Let's, I don't care where we're Let's just say we're here. Um, I'm going to tie this all together of, okay, how how on this side of Christ and this side of Christ we both find salvation. But I want to visualize what Paul is saying. He's saying that through one man's trespass, Adam, everybody was contaminated. Everybody was contaminated. There's a theological concept here that we see in Romans 5 that's actually pretty controversial because as Americans we don't like this or even just as a self-righteous bro, I don't like admitting this. Um, but it's this idea that there is inherent sin, that I have inherited sin, that this idea that's very clear, that Paul makes very clear, even if I do a pretty good job living my life compared to other people, biblically and theologically, truth would say, I have sinned because of Adam, because of the fall. I, I was born into sin. I wasn't born neutral and kind of get the, the, the opportunity to, to go one way or the other. I was born, I was dead in my trespasses, right? I was dead, I was born into this sin because of what had happened. And I think a lot of times, maybe it's an American culture thing, maybe it's, a, maybe it's just a me being self-righteous. I think, no, no, man, I don't, his sin shouldn't affect me, and we're all individualistic, and we all work for ourself, And But biblically, it, God says, no, no, there is condemnation through that one act. Uh, in the same way, that then there is justification through this one act. And so if we think, well, that's unfair that I now am born into sin because of Adam, how ridiculously unfair is it that now I get justification and God gives me his righteousness, not my own. He gives me his perfect righteousness over my sin by sacrificing his perfect son. How unfair is that? and yet I reap the benefits. Anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ reaps the benefits of that transaction. So one man condemned, and then one man, by what Christ did, hung on a cross, died for the sins of the world, rose again, and now intercedes for those who have put their faith in him to say their righteousness is given. Um, that's an amazing, amazing thing. He redeems all. Uh, something also interesting, and this is a little bit of a side note, um, but I think this this picture is important. Um, We know on this end, many of us know, okay, we are saved by grace through faith. That what saves us is not our works, not how good we can do, not how religious, not our church attendance, not how moral we can be. We are saved. We are given that justification, that righteousness by grace through faith. I put my faith in Jesus knowing I couldn't do it. And I look back and I think because of what Christ has done 2,000 years ago, I can be known by the God of the universe. I can be accepted by the God of the universe. That's grace through faith. Oftentimes people are confused and they think, well, how did people in the Old Testament get saved? Right? Like how did they, I mean, Jesus hadn't even been born yet. They're under the law. Because of Adam, they're under sin too. And it was the same way. They were looking forward to a savior. They were looking forward to a savior and and the whole sacrificial system, if you've ever heard anything about that in the Old Testament where they would sacrifice these animals, it was all an act of faith to say one day there will be an ultimate sacrifice that will pay for my sins. And I am putting my faith that one day God will send a savior. And so without Christ, right, we don't have anything, right? Without Christ, we are completely separated from God with no ability to approach God. But the gospel, the good news, Jesus Christ bridges that gap from what I deserve and what I get because of the gospel. And so that's what Paul is saying here. And he's saying it just beautifully in, in his articulation of through one man's trespasses, everyone was condemned. Through one man's act, everyone was justified who puts his faith. So then let me, let me show you how he ends it. Because these last four verses in chapter 5 are so beautiful and so encouraging. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. We see that. We see what God's doing here. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous. That is beautiful. Okay, don't miss verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespasses, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love that. That is so good. Paul is concluding his whole case on the gospel in these first five chapters and is saying, hey, this is the power of God's grace. The power of what Jesus did and the grace that Christ offers is this powerful. Uh, I want to make an observation real quick before we blow past it too quickly. But in verse 20, it says, now the law came in to increase the trespasses. And so, so we see that the law, right, which is the righteous standard that God calls us to live, that newsflash, you cannot live up to, I cannot live up to, but that 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 law, that standard, it reveals sin in us and and even makes the case it actually increases our sin. Let me give you a a case study in that. My four-year-old, when I want him to eat his vegetables or eat anything healthy on his plate, I tell him, you better not eat your vegetables. And he does it every time. I mean, every time, there is something inherently sinful about my four-year-old um, where it's like, oh, the rule is I'm not supposed to eat it, I'm gonna eat it, right? And tricks on him, right? I'm totally manipulating him, that's what dads do. But the point being, right, there is something in us that when we know it's the rule, it's like, oh man, I wanna break that. I, I, there's something in us that that it, at times the law actually increases sin. It reveals sin in us, but also it, it seems to even increase it. And so verse 20 is really just the, the greatest news in the world, right? Verse verse 20, but where sin increased, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, right? So as sin grows, as sin multiplies in your life, in theology, in the body of Christ, in our world, as sin grows, grace, we see this promise, this truth, whether we believe it or not is is, I think still up for debate, but we see Paul making this radical claim of truth. As sin increases, grace abounds all the more. That is the gospel, that is the good news, right? For those who have put their faith into Christ that no matter how much sin increases, God says my grace is gonna be more powerful. Here's the big idea of verses 12 through 20 and probably really the big idea of all of chapter five in a lot of ways. It's it's this, Paul's making this argument that the grace of God is infinitely more powerful than your sin. Paul's making this idea, right? He's letting us know that the grace of God is just infinitely more powerful than your sin. As sin increases in your life, Paul says, yep, grace will abound even more. Grace will always top it. Grace will always be more powerful than sin which is mind-blowing and encouraging and the greatest news in the world for a room full of sinners like me and like you. That is such great news. So do I believe that? Do I really believe that truth? Do I really believe that God's grace is, more, is infinitely more powerful than my sin? I want to give you four effects of how this should play out. There should be, if I really believe that this is true, it should affect my life um, in multiple ways, but I'm just gonna camp out on four of them. Uh, Here's the first one. If God's grace is that powerful, right? Really, that powerful, more powerful than no matter how far I can wander, no matter how far I can sin, or no matter how much sin I get exposed to, if God's grace is really that powerful, then first effect I could see, if I really believe it, is that sin has no power over you any longer, Sin has no effect or no power over you any longer. And here's what that looks like. We get stuck all the time. I'm a pastor, right? My job is vocationally to like walk closely to Christ. And I get stuck in patterns of sin all the time. All kinds of uh, sad and scary and and un-God-honoring patterns of sin in my life all the time. And yet what this truth says is that God's grace is really that powerful. And if I really believed it, then it would have the power to set me free from those patterns and those addictions and those things, those things that I continue to wander back to. Right, I think of this idea of, I so often look at my sin and I look at um, the sin of people I love, uh, who I walk with, and I, I just see us going back to empty wells. And we're chasing after something and you're chasing after something. You know people and and maybe you feel this conviction this morning and you're in a desert and you know there is a well that is rich and deep and full of life and full of water and living water and yet we go and we are going to empty wells and we're just chugging sand. And we are stuck in these patterns and stuck in these cycles uh, in our life and it feels like, man, how do I break free? How do I break free? 1 Corinthians, Paul, same author, to First Corinthians in chapter 10, he says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here, here's what we do when we get stuck in that place. If, if you this morning, if that resonates with you, and you think, I believe in the gospel, I believe the power of God's grace is infinitely more powerful than my sin, but man, I am stuck in this cycle. And what this is calling us to do, what Paul here in 1 Corinthians 10 is calling us to do is humble ourselves. The context of 1 Corinthians 10 is a humble yourself. Like, hey, if you think you've got all this yourself, you know, sit down lest you fall. And then he goes into this idea that, man, no temptation has fully overtaken you. And so if you find yourself stuck in that place of, under, of wondering, man, why is my, my faith weak in this area? It's a humble yourself. And the humble yourself looks like ask for help. That's what it looks like. Like, how do I walk out of that? How do I put the power of God practically in play? Where it's not just a sermon slide that we say God's powerful and we sing some songs. How do I put it in play to free me from patterns that I hate I'm stuck in? it's humbling yourself and asking for help. And that starts honestly with prayer. It starts with going to the God of the universe and saying, God, help me believe. Would you deepen my faith? Would you show me your goodness? Would you reveal yourself more and more? Would you reveal the power of your grace? That his grace, his kindness is what leads me to life change. Would I see that, and you get on your face and you pray and you pray and you pray, and then you go and you use the body of Christ that he's given you and you ask for help there too. You ask for help there. You find another brother or sister in Christ or you find a pastor or you find somebody that you say, man, I see the power of God's grace in your life. I need help. I just feel stuck in this place. And you get accountability, right? The the Christian-y word for it is accountability. That I've got somebody else who's, walking in that grace who says, man, let me walk with you. Uh, I meet every week with a guy, uh, another pastor at this church, and we meet every week and we just compare our brokenness to the goodness of God and, and are honest and open about where we struggle and what we're struggling with and where our brain's at and where our temptations are at. And we meet every week and we just dig into that accountability and I hold him accountable and he holds me accountable. Then we text throughout the week. And then he pushes me to the power of God's grace and I push him to the power of God's grace. Man, if you are stuck in that place and you think, okay, man, sin has no power over you any longer, but man, it sure seems to, I sure seem to still be shackled to this thing that I've been shackled to for my whole life. Man, would you step into the power of God? Would you humble yourself? Would you ask for help? Would you pray radical, bold prayers for God to intervene? And then would you grab believers And say, man, help me live this out. Would you hold me accountable that I would continue to deepen in my belief in that? If God's grace is that powerful, it means something else. Um, There's a second effect that if I really believe it, it means that shame has no place. Right? That if I really believe God's grace is this powerful, not only will, will I be freed from sin and these sin patterns, and some of those are deep and they take a long time. It's not a switch we flip. I don't want to minimize the spirituality to just oh, flip a switch and now I don't struggle anymore. This is, this is uprooting sin. In the same way, if God's grace is that powerful, then shame has no place. And man, shame runs deep in us. Shame is, I, I think, the enemy, right? I think the enemy to our souls, I think shame is his favorite weapon to use against me and against you. I think he loves to use that weapon. Um, There is a difference between conviction and shame. I want you to hear that. I want you to know that. I mean, the Holy Spirit, the Lord convicts me all the time. I'll hear a sermon or I'll be worshiping or I'll be in the car praying and I'll feel God's conviction in ways. And I'll think, oh man, yeah, I'm kind of wandering into that. And yeah, I'm I'm really making this about me, or yeah, whatever that conviction looks like, I'll feel conviction, and that's a good gift from a father who loves his kids and who convicts his kids to say, hey, hey, man, you're, you're just eating junk food and I have something better for you. You're just drinking sand out of an empty well and I have something better for you. That's conviction. But shame is what the enemy does. And what shame sounds like is, oh, you'll never be good enough. Oh, you've ruined yourself oh man, it's gonna take a long time for you to work yourself back from this mistake. That's what shame sounds like. That's the enemy's tool. And yet, when we make mistakes, when we make mistakes, um, shame tries to bury us. Uh, we talked about this. I always talk about this on the last night of our spring break mission trip. Love you, please, we'll miss you. Um, I always talk about this because, man, those weeks are so sweet and, and there's a lot, God does a lot of cool stuff in people's life. Just getting them, honestly, just getting unplugged and getting to serve and getting to be in gospel-centered community and, and worship. God always does cool stuff, but I'm always real sensitive of, man, walking back into the world. I know, I know where the, how the enemy is waiting. And it is, that, it is this one-two punch that the enemy loves to bury us with. And it's, we make mistakes. We blow up, man, we're like, we get close to the Lord. We have this great church service and we worship and we're like, man, we leave here and we're fired up. We're like, man, God's amazing grace in my life. And dude, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live closer to the Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to experience more abundant life that he's called me to this week. And then, and then we stumble and there's, there's, these, there's this, this first punch that just seems to hit us in the face, hit us in the mouth. But then that second punch is what takes us out. And that second punch is shame. And that second punch is the enemy saying, I can't believe you did that, right? In your head, in your heart, this voice that says, I can't believe you did that. You said you weren't gonna make that mistake. Now you did it. Now you're buried. And it spirals us. Shame spirals us because then we think, oh man, I blew it. I, I, st- I had God's grace and then I blew it and I stepped out of it. And then we just start making more mistakes and we spiral and we spiral and we spiral. And then we think, oh, just New Year's resolution. Oh, next semester. Uh, ne- next year. Oh, right? And, and we get buried by shame. Shame has no place in us if I really believe God's grace is that powerful. That verse 20 says, as sin increases, grace abounds all the more. It means that that voice of, ooh, man, you're ruined, that voice is a lie. That's what that means. Paul, to the church in Corinth, in his second book to the church of Corinth, 2 Corinthians, he says this in chapter 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Do I believe it, right? Do I believe the grace of God that I am a new creation, that no matter what has happened, I have now been made this new creation, and so all of the lies that shame would love to bury me in aren't there. Um, They're not there. How How do I put that in practice? How do you put that in practice? How is that not just a slide on a screen, but how do you put in practice saying, God, shame has no place in me. I wanna believe that. I want that effect to really, I want to be freed from shame. It looks like this, and this is hard. I think it looks like confession. Because what happens when we confess is we're acknowledging, I don't have to hide anymore. When we confess to somebody who loves Jesus, knows Jesus, it means that that shame doesn't have power because the enemy would love for you to just, oh, I can't believe you made that mistake. You need to hide it. You need to hide it. You need to hide it. Make more mistakes. Hide, hide. Put on a mask. Fake it. But what confession does is it says, wait a second, that shame has no power. That that mistake I made, that doesn't define me. Those those patterns I get into, those honest mistakes, honest sin, that doesn't mean, that isn't more powerful than God's grace. And so confession looks like an acknowledgement to put shame in its place and say, hey, I need to confess to you something. This is what I've been struggling with. This is where I'm at. This is what I did. This is what happened to me. Confession becomes this sweet tool. We don't do confession just because we're religious. We do it because it brings us back to the gospel. It brings us back to the power of God's grace. My wife, um, incredible, incredible woman. Um, I've mentioned parts of her her past and story before in here. Uh, She was stuck in this really toxic relationship for uh, over two years right? And they, they weren't even together, right? But still stuck, right? They'd broken up, right? Her and this boyfriend, but still stuck in this cycle of sin and still, but nobody knew. Nobody knew the extent of the toxicness and, and nobody knew what was going on because she, she held it and held it and held it. And then Man, just who my wife is, if you know her now, the, the godliness of that woman and how God has shaped her heart and um, I got to be this guy who stepped in and started dating her and watched her just get free from that and watched her be buried for a couple of years of like no one can know how unhealthy this relationship was and then for her to be able to confess that and I've seen my wife sit on a stage and share her testimony openly for the glory of God because that wasn't the finding for her. Man, confession is a tool to let us lean on this idea, this effect of the power of the gospel, that shame has no place in us. Third effect. Third effect, if I really believe, right, that God's grace is that powerful, then there should be a third effect that is, you have no choice but to share it with others. Right? If I really believe God's grace is that big, the first two are much more introspective. Right, I need to be freed from my own personal cycles of sin. I need to be freed from the shame that tries to bury me. But now we're gonna start start getting a little less personal and a little bit more uh, outside, and it's our effects, which is, I should be sharing it. If I really believe it, I should be sharing it. If there is this freedom, if there is this new creation that I am walking around as, and all of a sudden, all of my sin, his grace abounds more then that is something I should share. We share everything, man. We share great Netflix shows, right? If I watch a great Netflix documentary, I'm gonna share it with people. If I watch a funny movie, I'm gonna share it with people. If I see a hilarious fail meme, I'm gonna share it with people, right? I'm gonna watch fail videos all day. And I, I, yesterday with my boys, I was like, I need to expose my seven-year-old and my four-year-old to fail videos. They need to watch you know, people on bicycles wiping out. It's gonna define them as men in really important ways. I share things all the time. You do too, that are important, that make emotional impacts on us, (laughs) if the grace of God is really that powerful, then man, I should be sharing it. Uh, In Acts chapter four, there's this guy who is lame and and they heal him, right? He was sick and lame and he's healed by the disciples in the name of Jesus and it's like people flip out. They flip out in Acts four and they're like, what in the world, that guy just got healed? Are you kidding me? and they are going crazy, and so then the religious rulers who do not like all this Jesus stuff, right? All of those religious rulers of the day, all the Pharisees are like, whoa, you guys keep it down, keep it down, don't do that. Don't say that, don't, no, keep it down, keep it down. Let Let me pick up in verse 13. I'm gonna read this story for you. When they saw the boldness, the Pharisees, they're scared. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they marveled and took note that these men had been with Jesus. They see these guys who are not religious leaders, but they'd been with Jesus, Peter and John, Christ's disciples, and they're like, these guys are, they have been with Jesus. They are legit. And seeing the man who had been healed standing there with them, they had nothing to say in response. The evidence is literally standing in front of them of God's power. So they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin and then conferred together and they got together. What shall we do with these men, they ask It is clear to everyone living in Jerusalem that a remarkable miracle has occurred through them, and we cannot deny it. But to keep this message from spreading any further, the power of Jesus, to keep it from spreading any further among the people, we got to warn them not to speak to anyone in this name, the name of Jesus. Let's just try to suppress the Jesus thing. Clearly, this was cool. Let's try to suppress it. Then verse 18. They're like, all right, we got our plan. we got our plan. We're going to tell them to not share it. Cool. Great plan. Verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, I love this. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourself whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not find a way to punish them because all the people were glorifying God for what had happened for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So a man who'd been lame for 40 years old, 40, 40 years of his life, his whole life, healed by the power of God. They're like, stop it, cut it out. I cannot, we cannot help. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. That's amazing, right? If God has changed our life, then we should not be able to stop speaking about it. It should impact everything we do. We should should wear it as a badge. Look what God has done in my life. And it's not about us making much of ourselves or winning souls or converting people. It's about us just saying, look what he's done in my life. That's what it's about. Look what God has done in my life. Um, I've got another cousin, solid believer, right? Just loves the Lord. I got a lot of cousins who love Jesus. It's great. Uh, He works at Starbucks. He's in a Christian band, right? Which is a thing. Apparently, uh, he's in a Christian band. Everyone knows he's a Christian, real involved in like his church. Uh, and he and his buddy, who's also in the Christian band, worked as baristas at Starbucks. This was several years ago. And there was a, a girl there who didn't believe what they believed, right? She was an atheist and she, was, she didn't believe what they believed. And they were kind to her and they loved her really well. It was awesome, right? And they just were super kind to her, and, and they were friends, and they'd worked together for months and months and months. And one day, this person came in kind of abrasive, like kind of awkward, and was like, oh, man, do you know Jesus? You're going to hell if you don't know Jesus, and kind of walked him through kind of an abrasive gospel presentation, uh, this this girl. And she's like, what? I'm going to hell if I don't put my faith in Jesus. What are you talking about? And wait a second. Um, and she was really dis- distraught and really frustrated and, and was like kind of flustered. And she goes home and, and my cousin Matt and his buddy are like, whoa, man, okay, that's crazy. And so the next day they come back and she's got this huge smile on her face. Everything's good. She's like skipping into work. And they're like, okay, something, something happened. They're like, hey, what, what happened? What's up? How are you doing? You pretty fr- frustrated and flustered when you left. And I know that guy kind of weirded you out. And this is what she said. And this is so convicting, so convicting to me and obviously to them at the time. Uh, she said, I know I don't believe what you guys believe, but I know I'm not going to hell. And they were like, oh, okay, well, why? And she said, because if I was going to hell, if, if, if I was going to hell without Jesus, you would have told me. Like, any time in the last six months, we're friends. Like, we love each other. You guys are so nice to me. If, if you really believed I was going to hell without Jesus, then you would have told me. And so I started to think about it the other night and think, oh, there's no way because Matt would have told me. And it was this massively convicting moment of, oh man, oh man, I'm not loving people. I'm not, I cannot help but to share And all the time in my life, I do this. I think, well, I'm going to give them a little bit of Jesus. They'll know I'm a Christian. But I hold back, and we hold back. If we really believe God's grace is that powerful, then there there is nothing that would keep us from wanting to share, look at how good his grace is. Look at how powerful it is. Are you doing that? Real practically, what does that look like in your life? Not the awkward person who goes up and meets somebody and says they're going to hell if they don't know Jesus, right? It's not what I'm encouraging here. Although... Honestly, if the Holy Spirit puts in your life, be obedient to it, right? If you're sitting on a bus and God says, go tell that person, go talk to that person. But that's not what I'm getting at. I'm getting at what obedience looks like for you. To just, I have to tell about this newness that's happened, this freedom, this power of God's grace. If I really believe God's grace, then that would be happening. Are you doing that? Last thing is this. Last effect is that there is nothing more valuable that you could pursue. If God's grace is that powerful, then there's nothing more valuable than you could pursue. You are in a world right now surrounded by valuable things that you are asked to pursue. And they're legitimately valuable. Relationships, right? Like 18% of you will find your spouse in the college years. I made up that number. I have no idea what percentage that is. A lot of y'all like pulled out a calculator. 18, okay. Becky got a boyfriend. I don't. So I need, okay. Um, Right? So there is all kinds of important things that you will be pursuing, right? Uh, Work and GPA and your resume and all of those things are valid and true. But if the gospel is true and if God's grace is really that powerful, then there is nothing more valuable to pursue. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has sells all that he has, and buys the field. The grace of God is infinitely more powerful than your sin. And if we see that and believe that, it's like this treasure, and we say, man, it is worth pursuing with everything. I will trade everything for that. Does it mean you stop doing other things? No, but does it mean you prioritize chasing after the kingdom of God, chasing after his grace, chasing after relationship with him? Yes, it means you prioritize that. It means you say, above all else, if this is really that powerful, then that's what I want to chase. And that's what you do. So real practically, how, what does that look like in your life? How are you doing that? Are you chasing after the kingdom in this window of life that God has given you as a college age individual? Are you pursuing him? If you have no idea where to start, DM us, right? And and let us put you in serving in ways. Let us get you around serving or, or, or helping set up this room or whatever baby steps we need. Let us walk with you to challenge you to, to pursue his kingdom above all else. It is true that God's grace is that powerful. It is a free gift. Do we believe it? Because if we do, it'll have effects. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. And we are so grateful for how you love us. Um, Lord, would you continue to do the work that only you can do? Um, Father, uh, your grace is powerful. Um, as sin increases, your grace abounds all the more. And for that, we take incredible encouragement in. But would that not just be truth that we hear and pat ourselves on the back and make us think that it's okay? Would instead, we hear that and would that spur our effects in our life? Um, Would it spur effects of obedience, freedom of shame, freedom from sin, uh, that we become these living testimonies that just love to brag about what you are doing in our life, not ourselves, but you are doing in our life, God. And would we chase after the things of you, God, in the little ways and in the big ways. Stir our hearts this morning. Would we leave changed by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen.